This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Michael Abramowitz, president of Freedom House. Michael Abramowitz, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Uh, well, uh, we're excited to have you here. You are the president of Freedom House, an 80-year-old nonprofit and think tank that studies and advocates for democracy, freedom, and human rights around the world. For 80 years, uh, you've been contributing and supporting, that is Freedom House has, to freedom. Uh, but I got to tell you, it seems a pretty critical role at this moment, Michael. I always say, Roger, that it's the most uh, important issue in the world today, the future of freedom. And it's a privilege to be able to come uh, to uh, talk with you about the issue today. And I will just say that I think over the years, I think there have been some interesting connections uh, between Freedom House and uh, uh, the Reagan administration. We uh, were obviously a very nonpartisan and uh, organization. We try to work in a bipartisan way, but we've had over the years trustees who worked in the Reagan administration, like Gene Kirkpatrick, uh, Bob Tuttle now, uh, uh, Max Campbellman was the vice chair of Freedom House. So there's an interesting uh, connection between us and the, and the Reagan administration. Well, uh, thanks for highlighting that. And it really is reflective of who President Reagan was and, and what, he stand, what he stood for, what he stands for. Because as we've discussed elsewhere, you can't read anything President Reagan wrote. Uh, you can't watch something he said without running into that word freedom. I mean, it, it just is everywhere and animated uh, his political philosophy and, and how he looked at uh, governing. So uh, it's really great to have you here. And, and as just mentioned, a critical moment. One thing about your background before we jump in to the meat of your work at Freedom House and, and current events is you came at this world actually originally as a, a reporter for the Washington Post, where you spent uh, over two decades there. Did that time as a, uh, a journalist at the Post really complement and, and, and prepare you for this role at Freedom House? Is it a separate skill set? Uh, give, me, give me your take on how the, the time in, in journalism uh, informs your leadership of Freedom House. Well, thank you for that question. There, there's no question that being a journalist uh, makes you interested in freedom, right? I mean, to me, uh, we look at different freedoms at Freedom House, but I always say that uh, freedom of the press is absolutely critical to the success of democracy. Uh, and I am uh, was privileged to be at the Washington Post for many years to work for the Grams and for Ben Bradley and for Len Downey. And uh, it definitely prepared me uh, for the work I do, uh, being a political reporter as well, uh, covering uh, the George W. Bush administration, which was my last job there. I would also say, Roger, that another thing that prepared me for this job was working at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, which we've talked a lot, a little bit, you know, off off camera, if you will. And the Holocaust Museum is an incredible institution, and to me, uh, it's also many things about the Holocaust Museum could be said. But to me, one of the great lessons of that museum is about the fragility of democracy. 
Because if you remember, uh, when Hitler took power in 1933, Germany was not a perfect democracy, but it was one of the most advanced democracies in the world. And within a number of years, it became a, a, a country that committed genocide against the Jews. And so uh, that is a very sobering thought. And I think that also is very relevant to the work we do at Freedom House. Yeah, well, we're definitely gonna get into that. And, and of course you led the Holocaust Museum's Institute for Holocaust Education and their focus on genocide prevention. Um, unfortunately, it is a contemporary issue, a real live one uh, as we talk about China and the Olympics, we'll get, get to that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, your point is well taken. Uh, and that's why you need robust institutions and, and people who stand for institutions, um, not just uh, democratic processes, but institutions that support it. We'll get into all that, but I want to start first, uh, Mike, with probably the most well-known, at least for me as a, as a young policy person on Capitol Hill, I got to know Freedom House from their annual Freedom in the World reports. I have the uh, most recent one, uh, or the Freedom of the World 2021, I'm sure in the near future here, um, maybe in the time that this is published, we'll have Freedom of the World 2022. But what it does, at least as, as I think of it, um, it tells us the state of freedom in the world, which countries are free, which countries are partly free or not free. And most importantly, it's an annual measure, as I understand it, where you get a sense of which, which countries are advancing to becoming more free, or unfortunately, as the trend has been, at least on, on the 2021 report, uh, where there's backsliding. And, and so uh, add to that and, 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 and build out exactly uh, the Freedom of the World report. Um, but I know it, it, it's something that uh, policymakers, elected officials, and, and, um, and democracy advocates really look to for guidance and how we're doing. Right, there's no question that Freedom in the World which is a report you reference is kind of our flagship publication. We're actually coming up to about 50 years uh, of tracking freedom around the world, which this report started in 1973. And I'm gonna to come to that. Let me just say one brief word about Freedom House and what, one of the reasons I love working here is that we are in some ways both a think tank and a do tank. And so through products like Freedom in the World, we inform policymakers, the public about threats to freedom, but we're also trying to do something about it. And we are very active all over the world in supporting human rights defenders, uh, activists, journalists, civil society in really their own struggles for freedom. So I just wanted to make that we, 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 we try to be a, uh, a, a sounding board, uh, but we're also trying to do something about the problem. But Freedom in the World, as you said, is our uh, flagship publication. It started in 1973. And if you remember, Roger, uh, in the early 70s, there was a time where freedom was kind of on its back foot. You had the Soviet bloc. Uh, you had dictatorships in Latin America. Uh, it was really a grim time for democracy. And even in the United States, there was uh, uh, kind of a... a uh, uncertainty about the ability of democracy to solve problems in the world. And, 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 the, and the founder and the organizers of Freedom House at the time wanted to do a study that would really focus the issue and focus people's attention on the issue of freedom as a way of trying to galvanize people to do better. And so we've been tracking this for 50 years. Uh, what Freedom in the World essentially is, is a report card on every country in the world 
with respect to how they respect civil liberties and political rights. And that's what we measure. There's a little bit of economic rights that are part of the methodology, but, and I know that Reagan was quite interested in economic freedom. That's not really the issue that we're focused on at Freedom House. We're really focused on civil and political rights. And we Just evaluate that civil and political. So that means can people vote? Would, freedom of the right, press, the right freedom to, of religion. Right. All that uh, uh, rule of law, uh, property rights. Um, uh, it, you know, the way I think of it, you know, kind of a easy shorthand way is that the core of democracy is having free and fair elections. If you don't have free and fair elections, you can't have a democracy, but it's not enough. You have to have uh, protection for people to say what they want, to criticize the government. You have to have protection for the press. You have to have a rule of law so that uh, you know people have the re uh, the right to redress. It's 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 a uh, you, you need both political rights and civil liberties to have a really strong democracy. And uh, essentially, we rate every country. We look at, at 24 different indicators, and you can go to our website and look at that at www.freedomhouse.org. And we essentially evaluate each country based on how they respect the rights of the inhabitants uh, according to these indicators. And there are 24 indicators. And then we derive a score for each country on a scale of zero to 100. And we also have a methodology to basically break that down. And this is what I think the power of Freedom House is in terms of our public attention to our scores. We break countries down into free countries, partly free countries, and, and not free countries. And I would say the general story of freedom in the world for the past 50 years is that during the first part, maybe the first two thirds of the years that we've done this survey, freedom was on the march. You had the fall of the Berlin Wall. You had the collapse of dictatorships in Latin America. Uh, you really had what the political scientist Samuel Huntington called the third wave of democratization, which extended really up until about uh, the mid-aughts. And I think what you've seen, sadly, is for the last 15 years, a a gradual decline in political rights and civil liberties all around the world, in every continent. Uh, this has happened, obviously, you've seen a rise of authoritarianism, but you've also seen a weakening of, 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 some, of, the, of some of the strongest democracies. Uh, and that's the, that's, the, uh, that's the trend that we are quite concerned about. You we know, are actually, go, go ahead, sorry. Well, I, I was just gonna note, as, as you're describing the report and this, trend over the past 15 years. I'm looking at the, again, the 2021 report, um, which I know Freedom House uh, in the near future will, will, will put out their 2022 report. But yeah, I mean, in 2005, there were 89, what you designate as free countries. In 2020, we were down from 89 to 82, went 89, 87, 86, 82, over each of these five-year uh, periods. And then not free countries really you know, shockingly go from 45 in 2005 uh, to 54. Uh, it's relatively balanced in terms of those that are partly free. So you know, the, the trend is absolutely, as you described, Micah Bromowitz, but, you know, what about the methodology? And, and can we really look at this as a, a global kind of phenomenon 
or do we have to look internally to, to each country and one country's story really doesn't impact another? I'm sure you get critics simply saying you can't lump them all into just these three general baskets. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a critique we hear from time to time. What I would say is that we have real we really try very hard at Freedom House to judge every country by a similar standard. Uh, you know, do you is the press fee and fair? Were there free elections? Are people guaranteed uh, uh, you know the right to vote? You know, was the government uh, uh, duly elected? Uh, you know, there's a range of there's a range of different. Uh, uh, it, questions that we ask. And I would say that, yes, from time to time, we get critiques about that. And, and it's true that every country is unique. But I think that what you've seen over the last 15 years is some very uh, important kind of trends that cut across borders, if you will. Uh, I would say, for instance, one trend uh, which we're going to, you know, which we've been highlighting very much over the last couple of years is the rising uh, influence of China globally, and we can talk more about that. But I think one interesting trend in our reports over the years is that under President Xi Jinping, China, from a relatively low basis, has got even less free than it was, say, ten years ago or shortly before President Xi took. You know, took office. So I think there's some global trends, although you have to do say that every country uh, uh, you know, has its own peculiarities. One thing I should also say, um, and you've referenced this a couple of times in your questions, uh, we are going to, today is uh, Thursday, uh, the 17th. Uh, we're going to be releasing in one week our, our, our scores for 2021, and I can't obviously scoop our 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 uh, our scores, but let's just say 2021 was not a good year for freedom. Uh, you had a proliferation of coups. I think there've been more coups in 2021 than there've been in a long time, uh, and uh, you've seen some important countries have very serious uh, setbacks. And I would single out two. One would be Afghanistan, where uh, the Taliban takeover has taken what was an undoubtedly flawed but struggling democracy uh, to one that is, you know, clearly uh, uh, not a democracy anymore at all. Well, the Taliban doesn't claim it. I mean, it's it's. They don't claim by... it either. Right. 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 And then the other country that I would also single out would be Myanmar. Uh, where there was also a coup in early 2021. And that's a very sad story because, again, Myanmar had been one of those countries which had kind of for a while bucked the global trends. You had seen you know, so, you know, elections there. You had seen the installation of a popularly uh, uh, elected politician, Aung San Suu Kyi. And again, it wasn't a perfect democracy, but it was kind of moving in a better direction than it had been. And then the military coup there had really stopped all progress. So, I mean, without spoiling the breaking news that will come out here of the next uh, Freedom in the World report, we fair to say that 2021, as, as you note, was not a good year for freedom. And we have probably more countries that move from a free or partly free category to not free category. Of course, we'll see what plays out in Ukraine. Certainly, it seems that 
Vladimir Putin's objective in Ukraine uh, hasn't invaded as of the time of this recording, but perhaps by the time this publishes, uh, very well could have Russian troops approaching Kiev. Again, uh, not a good sign for 2022. We'll get into that in just a minute. But before we leave the Freedom in the World report, let me get your response as the leading voice from Freedom House to a common critique from elected officials and scholars in the United States who take uh, perhaps a realpolitik view, a view that says that the United States should only focus on our narrow self-interest. And while it would be great if other countries around the world were free, that shouldn't be an objective of us or the first or second or even distant third objective for our foreign policy. Mike Abramowitz, president of Freedom House, why is it something that we want to advance in the world and specifically these values that we care in the United, about in the United States that are enshrined in our Constitution, Declaration of Independence, take the view that this is actually a universal value that should be promoted. How do you respond to the critics and, and, and explain that this is something that is of universal interest? Well, well, Roger, that's a great question. It really goes to the essence of Freedom House, uh, if you will, and, and kind of our belief system here. There's no question that many Americans uh, care about bread and butter, domestic issues a great deal. You know, elections tend not to be won on foreign policy. They be they you know they tend to be won on whether Americans believe a candidate is going to address their economic needs and their basic security. And that's always first. But I will say that I do think that Americans are more idealistic than they're given credit for. And when they are summoned to a more idealistic, you know, values-based foreign policy, I think they respond accordingly. And candidly, I think that it happened, you know, under President Reagan. And I think what President Reagan and other presidents like him, I don't think it was, I think they've been both Democrats and Republicans. I'm not trying to be you know, uh, 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 partisan here. I think, you know, President no, Carter was partisan, all... but it's okay if you pick a favorite, like, in yeah, Reagan. I, but, I mean, I'm here at the here. Reagan Institute. So I want to, <laughs> I want, I want, I want to get invited back again. But, 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 but I think the point that I would really make is that it's essential for all of us at the Reagan Institute at Freedom House and others to really help people understand that their security and well-being is dependent on the presence of friendly allies and democracies around the world. There is a lot of academic evidence that democracies don't declare war on each other, uh, that uh, how would we feel, if you will, for us to be surrounded by countries uh, that are authoritarian, that don't you know, share our values? I mean, if you look at the way Russia has interfered with Syria over the years, or uh, or China, uh, 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 you know, trying to influence other countries. I think, I think the point that I would fundamentally make is that we do not want to live in a world in which we're surrounded by people and peoples that don't share a fundamental attachment to freedom. It doesn't mean that everything we do is right and that we haven't made mistakes. But I do think in the long term, we're better off economically and from a security point of view if 
if we live in a world in which freedom is the predominant value. And I think that we have to be very careful because we take a lot of things for granted. And there is no question that we still live in a world in which democracy is still the kind of predominant you know, model to which countries aspire. But I do worry that that could change if we're not careful. And, what that, and why we always say that values have to be part of our foreign policy. Well, uh, so I hear you saying an argument here, shared values. Uh, and, and so we want our Well, not partners. just shared values, right? But it's also in our interests. Our values are our interests. There that, we go. And, the, and, and that it complements our interests. Our and and really complements our interests. I mean, look, there's no question that we have other interests in human rights. You know, to take, to take an example of China, we have to be able to work with China to uh, advance solutions to uh, environmental challenges, global warming, the economy. Uh, you know, we, ha we have to be able to, to work with other countries, but we also have to stand up for our values. And, uh, and, and if you look at what happened in China, over the last uh, 10 years, if you look at what happened to the Uyghurs, uh, very credible allegations of, of genocide in Western China, uh, the snuffing out of freedom in Hong Kong, the saber rattling about Taiwan, that if we do not you know, really make clear where our values are, then I think that's going to be trouble in the future. Well, let's stick with China, and then we'll, then we'll jump to Ukraine. Um, at the time of this recording, we have the Beijing Olympics, Winter Olympics, many in your world, Mike, refer to that as the Genocide Olympics. Um, the Reagan Institute carried out a survey in November of last year, and you know the American people, those, those who responded, said that not only did they support a diplomatic boycott, there was actually more support for a full-on boycott or change of location and an economic Boycott. That is to say, not to have our companies, U.S. companies, support and underwrite the Beijing Olympics. Mike, give me your take on what it does to those who want to advance freedom, to those who have had freedom taken away from them, just like uh, those in Hong Kong or the victims of genocide in Xinjiang, the Uyghur population. What does it do to them when the world supports the People's Republic of China carry out an Olympic Games? Well, let me just say, I think it was a very serious mistake for the International Olympic Committee to agree to put the Games in China this time. There's no question that for the past four years, the Chinese government has been committing widespread crimes against humanity and acts of genocide against the Uyghurs and other religious and ethnic minorities throughout China. And that, to me, disqualified China as a, as a reasonable host for these games. And no matter what people are saying, they're turning their, their gaze away from this. It's an abomination to have the games in China. And, and, and let me just say, I, I, I do think that while the games have gone on, it has been, I think there's been some impact. The ratings of the games are down considerably. Uh, I think people are raising questions about the companies that have continued to sponsor the Olympics. And I think, I suspect, although I have no evidence, that the 
Olympic Committee, you know, may be having second thoughts about their decisions uh, to put the games in China. Interesting. Let's get your perspective as a expert in the Holocaust. We we hit on that at the beginning. A lot of people have been drawing the parallel between the Beijing Olympics that are occurring in 2022 with the 1936 Berlin Olympics, which of course was a great propaganda opportunity for the Nazi regime. Is that a fair parallel? I mean, of course, this is what you studied and led on in terms of genocide prevention out of uh, the Holocaust Museum. What's your take on that? Well, every case is a little bit different, but to me, there is no question that the 1936 games were a propaganda victory for Hitler. Uh, in fact, journalists at the time, like William Shirer, who was one of the journalists who was present in Germany during the games, he wrote that, that it was a, a, a big propaganda victory. It's not us saying this 80 years later, this was a perception at the time. Of course, you had the very inspiring story of Jesse Owens you know, winning four gold medals and, you know, really kind of putting the lie to the uh, uh, to the Nazi theories of racial superiority for the Aryan race. So, I mean, it was not it was not all bad, shall we say? But it, but it was it was disturbing. And and I think I think the one thing that I always think about with the 1936 games is that at the time Germany had not yet perpetrated mass murder against the Jews. That was sort of in the future. There are starting to be concentration camps. There was very serious uh, uh, violations of the Jews' civil rights, the Nuremberg laws. I mean, there were some very serious problems. And I, and I sometimes wonder if the world had taken a stronger stance against Hitler in those earlier days that maybe we could have avoided the Holocaust. I mean, that may be Huh. Pollyannish, maybe not realistic. You know, Hitler from day one was determined to, uh, uh, but, but to act against a, the Jews. But but I but I do think it's an important story that we did not stand up to Hitler when it might have made some difference. That's an excellent point. One I haven't heard others make. I mean, the Von Zey conference, which is where they came up with the final solution, which was, you know, the kind of moment where the plan for genocide was going into effect. Of course, there was conduct beforehand, but that was the, the where the strategy came together. That wasn't until 1942. So to your point, Mike, you had about, you know, six years between the, the Olympics and Von Zay. And yeah, if the response would have been different, if there would have been uh, more pressure uh, or, or other activity, maybe. Right. There, there were a lot fashion. of other reasons. You know, I think, I think really up until the whole world the British government, our government, uh, you know, did not move early enough to really, uh, and I say that with the benefit of hindsight. Sure. I think other cases in history show how difficult it is for any country, uh, for many countries to really act early and decisively to, to prevent genocide. And you, and you see that today, by the way, with situations, you know, in mass killing in Syria, uh, or uh, the, the 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 persecution of the Rohingya uh, in and the, the crimes against the the Rohingya, and now the crimes against the Uyghurs in China, 
uh, we always talk about never again, but in some respects, it's ever again. Mm. So let's move to Ukraine and, and Russia, because there's another example where we have uh, an autocrat dictator who is a, organizing an assault on freedom. You wrote a piece in The Hill uh, kind of a half a year ago or so where you outlined an argument where presented Russia not only as, and, and Putin in particular, um, a country where there is no freedom, but actually um, Putin as somebody who is a perpetrator of transnational repression. You wrote, it accounts for seven of 26 known extraterritorial assassinations or assassination attempts against regime critics since 2014. Detentions, unlawful deportations, renditions, mostly in Europe. Now, I, we pulled out that article because I guess it suggests to me, as we think about what Putin is doing in Ukraine, obviously we have Georgia in 2008, Crimea in 2014, but also this is somebody who hates freedom. <laughs> Putin is somebody who wants to attack it and to see it defeated. I don't, I, I don't put words I, 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 argument, I, listen, but, but I, I, totally, I totally agree with you, Roger. And I think I would just make two points about Putin. Putin is a pioneer of kind of the new forms of authoritarianism that have now become quite popular around the world. Uh, Putin, when he took office, uh, at the end of 1999, the, you know, the, the turn of the millennium, millennium, not the millennium, well, the millennium, I guess, yes. Uh, he took office you know, just at the beginning of 2000. At the time, Russia was not a robust democracy, but it was trying to become a more of a free country, a more democratic country. I believe Freedom House rated Russia as partly free. And, and basically what Putin did is he systematically extinguished freedom. He moved against the independent media. He moved against having an independent judiciary. He moved against civil society, enacting laws that made it much more difficult for civil society to kind of hold the government to account to the point that he is now forcing out of business the great organization Memorial, which is the kind of the chronicler of the and the documenter of the gulag uh under stalin and has been a great human rights uh uh voice in 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 in, in russia and other countries have now emulating the way putin tried to, has successfully extinguished freedom in russia the second point about putin is that he's now taking this beyond his borders and i think and this is a point of the article that i wrote and really one of, I think, a very important study that Freedom House did last year, which was a very serious look at what we called transnational repression, which is basically the effort by authoritarian countries to reach beyond the borders and target their critics who are working in exile with intimidation, surveillance, in some cases, kidnapping, and in a few cases, murder. And we outlined 
more than 600 cases of what we call transnational oppression. We're still cataloging them. And we tried to really name that as a problem. And, uh, and, and, and by the way, we've gotten some attention for that, but from the Biden administration and in Congress on a bipartisan basis, people are recognizing now that repression is not just staying inside Russia and China, but they're trying to move beyond their borders to repress people. So, so keeping into Ukraine, because I want to go to the broader challenge in a minute, um, Freedom House, along with the McCain Institute and the Center for Strategic International Studies, put forward a task force that looked at some of the trends that you were just outlining. So I want to get to that in a minute. But sticking with Ukraine, you know, Putin's being innovative, as you've outlined, but also this is old school. <laughs> This is tanks rolling over sovereign territory and very well could end up occupying what is, as of today, the free capital of Ukraine in Kiev. There are voices here in the United States. There are leaders in Europe who seem to think this does not have to impact us. This is not our problem. Mike Abramowitz, president of Freedom, Freedom House, outline for us why the freedom of those who sit in Kiev and Ukraine is relevant to the United States uh, and to the West, and you know both from value but also just core interests. Right. Well, I think that point of view is naive, and I think that point of view is naive for this reason. I think Ukraine is a democracy however imperfect and however kind of in progress. And it is a country that has made it very clear over the last 10 years, the people of Ukraine, they've made their voices heard and they've said time and time again, we want democracy, we want freedom, they want to expand those freedoms and they want to align more closely with Western Europe and not live under Putin's shadow. And I think that we just have to first remind ourselves of that. This is not something that Americans or Europeans or others are saying they want. They want freedom. So that's the first point. The Ukrainians do not want to live under Russian domination or Russian pressure. I think the second point I would say is that it strikes me that the administration has done a good job of trying to really deter what Putin has threatened to do. I'm sure there can be many criticisms of what they've done and uh, you know, foreign policy experts will debate this, but they've tried to bring together the allies. They've made it very clear the high costs to Putin if he goes into Ukraine. You know, They've moved some troops to Poland. Uh, I think there's a very strong effort to deter Putin that may or may not succeed. And I hope it does. And I think there's a chance that it succeeds. I do think that Putin may be having some second thoughts about what he had planned to do when he, was, when he sees the resolve of, of, of Western countries. Uh, so I think, I think the point that I would just emphasize finally, Roger, is that it's not just Ukraine that Putin wants. It's that he wants to subvert and undermine the idea of democracy and freedom. And Biden's not 
saying he's going to send U.S. troops to Ukraine. I mean, no one's talking about, you know, getting embroiled in a shooting war. But he's really making the point that if we kind of go along with this without any effort to kind of stop it, that we will kind of open the door for more demands from Putin. We could open the door for <laughs> more Chinese efforts to be bellicose against Taiwan, because the Chinese are certainly looking at how we're handling this. So I think I think there's a larger story here that's involved in Ukraine. So deterrence here is really a broader effort to deter adventurism on the part of despots and autocrats. Um, Notable that you said, "Hey, we're not going to. We shouldn't put boots on the ground." I think I heard you said, or you don't think it's likely. Well, well look, I'm not. I, 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 I'm just saying. It, it, I'm just saying that the Biden administration. I've seen no talk about. They, they said they about, won't. They, they, they said they, they won't. won't. And and and, they, and and but 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 I, it does seem to me they've made it clear that there will be very high costs for Putin to pay if he moves against Ukraine. In other words, that, that's what they've said. To date, there hasn't been one sanction passed or implemented against uh, Vladimir Putin and, and Russia, uh, I, I think you're, you're, you're right that oftentimes policymakers or elected officials want to kind of create this binary choice. Either we do everything in the toolkit to help Ukraine, inclusive of boots on the ground, or we do nothing at all because we don't want to avoid a, a, you know, any boots on the ground, any shooting more than involves Americans. And what I hear you saying, Mike Abramowitz, is there's a lot of space in between. Do you feel, I mean, you've been around this, you cover as a reporter, you, you, you're Washington insider. Do you think we can deter a Vladimir Putin short of putting boots on the ground in Ukraine? It's a good question. And the honest answer, Roger, is I'm not sure. Uh, but I do think that There's some very bad things that could happen for Russia that the Russian people will not be happy about. And I think Biden has made it clear some of those things will happen if 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 he goes into Ukraine. Well, so we could see a Russia occupy Ukraine. The Ukrainians in the end of the day, as you know, want freedom and, and they will do yeah. what they have to do to push back on, on on Russian occupation should that happen. But what I hear you saying is that Russia should be punished for it in the form of sanctions or other uh, types of actions, uh, and they should pay a price for their assault on freedom. I absolutely think that, but I hope it doesn't come to that. I hope that Putin thinks the better of this. We will see. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and, and no one does, perhaps only Vladimir yes. Putin. Um, we only have a few minutes left, but I do want to hit on a really consequential uh, task force report that, uh, as I mentioned before, Freedom House put out along with the McCain Institute and the Center for Strategic and International Studies, that's a mouthful, they call it CSIS in Washington, D.C. And it was really a task force looking at how do we support democracy and counter authoritarianism. Uh, really interesting recommendations there. One I want you to hit on, Mike, and that is you advocate a fairly inside the beltway um, idea, but one that I guess could have real consequence if it was embraced by U.S. government, and that is we should establish democracy as a fourth D. Uh, one more line on this, and I'll turn it over to you. Generally, we think about our tools in government, the U.S. government and foreign policies. You have diplomacy, one D, uh, defense is a second D, and then development being the third D that your uh, task force or this task force would advocate 
for fourth democracy. Tell me about that, Mike. Sure. Well, the idea behind the task force, Roger, was these three institutions, Freedom House, CSIS, and the McCain Institute, which I think represents a cross-section of kind of opinion, we, sh we shared a common concern about the rise of authoritarianism, the weakening of democracy, and we wanted to kind of elevate this issue in the public eye by saying, just like climate change is an issue, or just like uh, immigration is a problem, that the demise of liberal democracy is also a major challenge, and that it needs to be it needs to be conceived of as a government problem that needs to be addressed just the way those problems are. And there needs to be more of a kind of across the government interagency effort on the part of the U.S. government. And it was really directed you know, towards the Congress and the U.S. government in terms of the audience for these recommendations to develop a stronger uh, kind of pro-democracy policy uh, for uh, by the U.S. government. And I will say, I think, you know, the last major effort in this regard, you know, came 40 years ago. Uh, you know, we've talked about that a little bit, the, the Westminster speech, the Westminster speech by, by President Reagan, which led to the creation of the National Endowment for Democracy, which is now a an amazing organization, which is uh, has a lot of bipartisan support and is spending uh, a considerable amount of treasury and, and work to, to advance freedom around the world. And we said, you know, 40 years later, we got to rethink what this strategy is all about. And, and, and really the first thing we got to do is say democracy is equally important as these other things. Because if you don't have democracy, you're not going to be able to advance your agenda. Perhaps as a semantics, but a little pushback just so we can get a, a kind of richer sense of the recommendation. You know, to me, diplomacy, defense, development, those are all tools to an objective. Right. right? Uh, to an end state. And to me, we, you know, I hear you saying this, we should use our diplomacy, we should use our defense as appropriate. Um, we should use our development tools to realize and advance freedom and democracy around the world. Are you seeing democracy, you know, so when you say a fourth D, doesn't it make the objective the tool or am I misunderstanding? I, I take your point. I think what we're really trying to say, and it's the, really the number one strategy, is we want to elevate support for democracy and countering authoritarianism to kind of the heart of U.S. foreign policy and national security, to say that if we don't combat the trends that we've been talking about for the last hour, the, the U.S. is going to be severely crippled on the world stage if we are increasingly surrounded by autocratic governments and those governments uh, uh, are, are at odds with us on a whole range of different issues. One other piece of, of this report, I mean, there are a number of really uh, good findings and recommendations, but an area that they looked at deeply in this task force was digital repression and the fact that we have autocrats like we've been talking about the conduct of China, you outlined that in our conversation earlier of Vladimir Putin. Another example, they use the tools of the digital age uh, to defeat freedom. 
And that's, that's what they're doing. Um, tell us about what you would have the U.S. government do to address that. Do you, and, and more broadly, Mike, do we have the tools? Do we have the institutions, the know-how to actually engage in combat with the digital authoritarians? Where are the digital you know, freedom warriors uh, combating with uh, the digital authoritarians? It's a great question. Let me just sort of say a word about the problem first. Sure. One of the one of the really important projects that Freedom House works on every year, in addition to freedom of the world or freedom in the world, is freedom on the net. And this is, in some ways, an even more consequential. I wouldn't say my. I, I love all our children, but it's a very consequential report which is now not 50 years old, but about 11 or 12 years old. And that report really looks at the uh, online terrain, you know, the respect for human rights online, censorship, disinformation, all the issues you're talking about. And I think I, the reason I mention it is the last report we did, which came out in September uh, of 2021, really put a pin on the growing effort around the world led by Russia and China to uh, to really control the information that their people are getting and to undermine uh, democracy and, and freedom of expression through digital tools. So it's a really big problem. And uh, I wouldn't say, you know, honestly, it's one of the hardest challenges uh, for 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 government. Uh, it's there's no magic bullet or silver bullet. Uh, to solve that, but it will require a much greater attention from the State Department and from other agencies uh, to fight it. And that was one of the key messages uh, of the report, that we really have to develop a, a, a more whole of government strategy to, uh, to fight uh, digital authoritarianism and, and kind of rebuild trust in the information environment. And by the way, that lack of trust in information in institutions is in some ways the most challenging issue we face over the next 10 or 15 years, because it's really not something that's easily done. Uh, great point and a, a really excellent report. Congrats on that. We're going to wrap up this conversation uh, with our lightning round. Uh, Mike Abraman is president of uh, Freedom House. Uh, share with us either your favorite Reagan book, favorite Reagan speech, or favorite Reagan quote. We'll, we'll take anything you got. What do you have? A couple of things about Reagan. So I was a Washington Post reporter for uh, 20, almost 25 years, and my the greatest Reagan reporter was was Lou Cannon, my colleague. I'm proud to say he was my friend, and I would always recommend every one of Lou's books about Reagan. And I thought his book about the Reagan presidency was one of the best books I've ever read about uh, about presidential history. Very, very, I mean, very fair and interesting. Favorite Reagan quote, which we use a lot at Freedom House, is something that you hear every time. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. You know, we didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on to them to do the same. And that's just a very powerful quote, speaks to me uh, very much. And I would say that's my favorite Reagan quote. Obviously, the Westminster speech is a really important speech. Uh, uh, a guy named Mark Palmer, who was a vice chairman of Freedom House after he left government service, uh, was very involved in helping craft that speech. And so that's, uh, I would say that's my favorite Reagan speech. Great set of answers from Lou Cannon to the Westminster speech. Micah Bromwitz, thank you so much for being on the show. 
It's great to be with you, Roger. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend. Thank you.